I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know that peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's sticks? Their wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate? I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy, and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you, found wherever candy is sold. We're going to do a place called Fiori's, which is similar to Ruby Rosa. It's actually based on the owner of Ruby Rosa's father's pizzeria. This place is going to be really Early on in the documentary about Scott Wiener, he's leading one of his pizza tours in New York. He's walking down the street with a group. They're on their way to the next pizzeria. When suddenly, Scott stops dead in his tracks. All right, guys. Guys, come here. Check this out. He gathers the group around a paper plate on the ground. It's filthy. Looks like it's been stepped on a hundred times. To most people, it's garbage. But to Scott, it's a precious pizza artifact. So this has had pizza on it. You can tell by the two grease puddles. These grease puddles end in straight lines that, when seen together, make out the shape of a triangle. It's like a chalk outline where a slice used to be. So the slice was laying right there, and I would say that was probably from, not from Artichoke, which is up the block. Artichoke has a much bigger grease footprint, but it's probably from this place called Dollar Slice $2 Beer. (laughs) And why does he know so much about pizza? So how many entries do I have? 1,859 times. I've had pizza in the past three years. 401 pizzerias, 2,491 slices. I love pizza, but I, I, don't, I really don't think I'm insane. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. And it's not an accident that the word obsess is in the tagline of our show which is why Scott Wiener is really an ideal guest. Giving pizza tours is his full-time job. He calls himself a pizza enthusiast, but let's face it, he's obsessed. When I arrived at his apartment for our interview, he had just been baking bread. It almost smells like a pizzeria here in your apartment. That, what, that is the greatest comment and honor I could ever get. Yeah, it's, I try to keep oregano dusted everywhere. <laughs> I flick it into the corners. Yeah, yeah. Flicking is a real art. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, in the flick, you crush the uh, herb and you open up more of the herbs so the oils are able to enter the air. I would, I would take like a four-week class just to learn that, that method. I don't think Scott was joking about taking a class on flicking. Over the years, he has visited tomato farms in California and buffalo farms in Italy to see the source of the milk in buffalo mozzarella. He's scoured old phone books and marriage records to see when certain pizzerias opened or closed, which owner of one place was related to the owner of another. He's planned entire vacations around visits to pizza box factories. It started off because I just enjoyed eating pizza and I liked the culture of the pizzeria, the kind of restaurant and maybe the only kind of restaurant that I would ever go into alone or with a friend as a 12-year-old kid in suburban New Jersey and, you know, be able to handle myself. It just was this warm, welcoming place. And then as I aged, I realized that, um, that that was always still the same. Were there other things when you were younger that you got really into to an extreme degree? There was nothing quite as deep as this pizza thing. But of course, yeah, when I was little, it wasn't like there was a job attached to it. Right. Ever. But 
but I, you know, I was always really into music and um, like, you know, in high school and in college, I was playing in bands and recording bands. And that's what I thought. That's what I thought my obsession was going to be. And that was it. What I'm curious about understanding is like, were you bound to get obsessed with something? I think I, I think I was because whenever I, I guess I, at the time I didn't think of it as an obsession, but whenever I got into something, if it was a project for school or whatever it was, I would get fully into it. You know, I would, I would dig myself as deeply as possible and concentrate. So I guess when I wandered into the whole pizza thing, that was just sort of undiscovered country for me. And maybe that's, maybe it's the same brain pattern that allowed me to dive into that. So Scott's career path was determined by a deep love of pizza, a personality trait, and a twist of fate. In October of 2007, I rented a bus and I just took my friends on like a, like a pizza crawl. I would not have called it a tour. It was just a pizza crawl. Let's go out for my birthday. We'll hit up a bunch of pizzerias. It'll be 30 of us. We'll just bring them on the bus and eat them. And that was awesome. Right after that, all my friends kind of like encouraged me to do it as a real thing. And it was in that six-month span that I thought, uh-oh, people are going to come on this tour who know way more than me, have been eating pizza longer than I've been alive. So during that six months is when I was like, oh, I better learn what I'm talking about. So I just spent a lot of time researching and I, you know, like for that first six months of running the tour, I guess I was always concerned that, oh, today somebody's going to show up who's been making pizza for 35 years and they're going to school me, which is fine. I want that, but it's hard to do that in front of paying customers. (laughs) (laughs) And do you remember a moment when you realized like, oh, maybe I am an expert? Yeah, I, I started to get people who own pizzerias. And these exact people I was terrified would come on the tour, started coming on the tour. And instead of it being them telling me how wrong I was, it was their minds being open because they have been doing the same thing for 35 years. It's their family's pizzeria. They do it that way. And that's what they know. They don't necessarily know why they do it. For instance, why do some places use coal ovens while others use wood or gas? Well, coal takes up a lot less space than wood. So traditionally, where real estate was more expensive, coal was more common. And when people who've only used one pizza oven for decades come on Scott's tour, they realize where they fit into the mosaic of pizza and how they are not the definition. They see themselves as a piece of that puzzle. And so that's when I started to realize, oh, wait a second, I do have something valuable even to people who are in this for longer than I've been alive. And that was a huge moment. What's one of the most extreme things you've ever done in search of pizza knowledge? Well, I crawled inside Lombardi's oven once back in 2010. <laughs> was it on? It was not on. So every few years they have to shut down their oven. And Lombardi's uses this coal-fired brick oven from and the late 1890s. And we should Lombardi's is the first pizzeria in America. I will say Lombardi's was the first pizzeria in America. Okay. I'm only changing the words there because they were out of business for several years in two different times in their history. Okay. And they moved locations and changed owners. But yeah, Lombardi's was the first pizzeria in the United States. So every couple of years, they have to shut down the oven to do repairs on the floor because it's all brick. The floor of the oven is, is the surface on which the pizza is placed. Precisely. They have to close off the oven, let the coals die down, and then two days later, they send people in to work on the oven on the inside while it's still pretty hot. So I had just bought an infrared thermometer and I, I used the opportunity to go there and check out this oven when it was open. And I'm reading temperatures of over 300 Fahrenheit on the floor. This is days after it was turned off. Yeah. 
So I said, hey, when they have a lunch break, can I crawl in there? And they said, yeah, go for it. I was probably in that oven for maybe 45 seconds before the <laughs> owner pulled me out because he, I don't know what, but he decided at the last second that maybe this is a bad idea, that they don't have insurance to cover me. Right. And I'm like, just let me in. I just, well, because, you know, in, in you phrase it in the right way. It's really just in, if I talk about this oven every day and I have an opportunity to understand it literally from the inside out, then I need to take that opportunity. On each of his tours, Scott hands out pocket pizza journals and shows people how to evaluate a slice. He even gives them tips on how to eat it, explaining the temperature at which hot cheese will burn your mouth. It's 175. He also gets into the origins of pizza itself, as he did when he and I met up. For centuries, people made flatbreads. They'd bake dough and then put stuff on top. Scott says pizza was born when people started putting the toppings on before baking the dough. And that change served a purpose. The earliest pizzas were being baked by bakers, by bread bakers, sort of as a way to cool down the floors of their ovens. So they would set a fire in the inside of their oven to set the temperature of the oven for baking for that day. But once the oven reached its maximum heat potential, what they call the soak point, then you would let the fire die down and you would have to bake something on the floor of the oven just to cool it off slightly so you could start baking breads. And that thing that a lot of people would bake would be flatbreads, little stretch out of dough, throw something on it just to weigh it down. And wh- but why, why does having weight on the dough matter? If you don't have any weight on a flattened dough that's sitting directly on the hearth of an oven, then it inflates like a balloon. And then it doesn't do a very good job of, absor- of absorbing heat from the floor of the oven because it's essentially turned into a ball. It's not, most of it is not touching the surface anymore. Exactly. So to keep everything touching the surface, you put something on there to weigh it down, which back in those days, pig fat was an early, an early item, uh, like anchovy or anchovy paste, anything that was cheap and available, that's what you used. Nowadays, tomato, cheese, pepperoni, whatever. Right. So the initial purpose of the toppings was to hold down the dough to keep it on the floor of the oven so that it would cool that surface. Right. And putting aside exactly when that happened, I understand that was not an invention moment, but that evolution took place in Naples, Italy. Is that right? In yeah, exactly. Surrounding areas. Exactly. Naples, somewhere around the late 17th century. And that's Southern Italy. Exactly. Southern Italy. Why didn't it spread throughout Italy? All these areas of Italy, there are 20 separate regions of Italy, and they all don't love each other. So when Italy became a unified country in 1861, uh, it wasn't like, okay, we're all together now, groovy. No, it was still, there was a lot of internal racism. And prior to that, even a lot of that internal racism was based on people in the South were looked at as being dumb and uneducated and diseased, which Naples did have several time periods of uh, cholera epidemics and tainted water supply and uh, even nowadays, there's a lot of garbage strikes that keep people away from visiting Naples. So when you associate a food with a place, then suddenly that food takes on the characteristics of the place in the mind of the consumer. So pizza Napolitana, it's it's like saying Philly cheesesteak. If you don't like Philadelphia, then you wouldn't like the cheesesteak. You know, it's kind of the same kind of relationship with a city and a food. Right. So pizza had that connection with Naples, and it was the fault of Naples that pizza never spread around Italy. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, a lot of those Southern Italians came to the U.S. to work in factories in the Northeast, and they brought pizza with them. 
At first, Americans avoided pizza. It was considered street food for poor people. But around the 1950s, it started to really take off. Americans were looking for more convenience foods, and pizza was cheap and portable, perfect for delivery. Which brings us to the other part of Scott's pizza obsession, the boxes. He holds the Guinness record for the largest collection of pizza boxes, over 1,400 of them. He has them from all over the world. He's exhibited his collection in New York and Berlin. Scott stores most of his collection in his Brooklyn apartment, which, by the way, is very neat and tidy and not overly adorned with pizza paraphernalia. He does have the Guinness certificate framed on the wall, which, I mean, if I had a Guinness record, I would do that too. But the boxes are mostly packed away. Scott says when he was looking for an apartment, he kept telling realtors that he needed a lot of closet space. So they'd say, oh, are you moving with your girlfriend? Are you getting married? And he'd have to be like, not exactly. Which made me wonder, how does all this affect dating? I am very conscious of the fact that my job and my whole lifestyle and this whole world is is unique. So I don't like that to run a whole conversation. But I'm, I also know that it's very much truly me. So it's okay if I'm getting to know somebody, they will need to know this at some point. <laughs> but maybe not the first five minutes of right, like, right, right. hey, how you doing? Hey, I got to tell you about this pizza I saw yesterday. Listen to this. <laughs> they were using bituminous coal. I can't believe it either. <laughs> but I would think just on a practical level, like you work a lot on nights and weekends when you travel, you're always going to be tempted. This has happened to me. Like my wife and I went on a baby moon uh, before our first daughter was born. We went to Quebec City and I insisted on eating poutine at five different places. And my wife, to her <laughs> credit, you know, at that point, we, you know, she was already stuck with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She put up with it. But I understand that that can be hard. Yeah. Wow. You're, you're, you're hitting you're hitting right deep. Absolutely. It's whenever I go anywhere. My first thought is, oh, what are the pizzerias nearby that I've been meaning to check out? Has anyone you've been dating ever said, I think you love pizza more than me? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, everyone. (laughs) Everyone. (laughs) Oh, no. And, you know, maybe it's it was acted as if it was in jest, but I know the truth. (laughs) Look, I love pizza, but... I don't. I really don't think I'm insane. You know, like we're in my apartment right now. Th- this is the way it normally looks. It it's not like there's pizza stuff everywhere. Yeah, you got it covered up pretty well, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> but because you know, people always wonder, they're like, "Do you have like a pizza bedspread and like pizza <laughs> wallpaper?" And, but they think it's everything. And really, I keep all my pizza stuff in my office. I think I'm a pretty normal human. Well, I noted in the in the documentary about you that in one of your very early iterations of your pizza journal, and you had different different um, rating levels for different pizzas, and the highest possible rating that you offered to a pizza was a pizza you could fall in love with. Right, it's true. Do you ever feel like maybe you're already married? <laughs> yeah, I feel like you know a woman in my life is sort of uh, you know is the other woman. Right. Yeah. I mean, look, this is a, a huge part. It's not just. A job. It's not just a business. I I was with a bunch of friends last night who all run their own businesses, and I kind of mentioned how well. Oh, I would. Why would I ever sell? It's this is not a business that I would sell. It's not. This is not a product. You can't this have Scott's pizza. You can't have Scott's pizza tours without Scott. No, but like they were all talking about it in that way, and they're like, "Well, what do you see it in the future?" And I'm like, "What are you talking about? I get up every day and I go talk about pizza and eat pizza. What more is there?" 
Coming up after the break, we'll check out Scott's Pizza Box collection. This is a great one. Wow. He'll show me boxes that are more beautiful and more ingenious than any pizza box I've ever seen. Plus, Scott and I discover that there's one very important thing about pizza that we do not agree on. Stick around. And now, delicious word from our sponsors. Mm-mm, it's very good. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels, and you will get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria Hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool... Almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the Choice Hotels take care of all the other stuff too, but I mean, a pool is a great start. Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. The weather's warming up. Have you nailed down your summer travel plans yet? I can tell you, we're working on ours and things are booking up, which is why you should be thinking about Norwegian Cruise Line. They have been raising the standards of cruising for more than 55 years. Let me tell you, when you cruise with NCL, you get award-winning specialty restaurants, immersive entertainment, and the most thrilling experiences at sea. Now, look, one of the great things about cruises in general is that you can visit and explore all kinds of different destinations, all with the ease of unpacking your bag just once. But Norwegian Cruise Line... They take cruising to another level and they take food to another level. With no set dining and entertainment times and no formal dress codes, you have the flexibility to design your ideal vacation. They have an incredible variety of truly authentic and fresh dining and bar experiences complemented by exceptional service. Listen to this. There are up to eight complimentary and nine specialty dining options per ship and up to 23 bar and lounge options. Come see why NCL's guest first philosophy means exceptional service and unforgettable memories. Book your next vacation at ncl.com. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn best buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. they got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. Are you ready for warmer weather? I know I am. 
But is your wardrobe ready? I just stocked up on spring and summer clothing at Quince. And let me tell you something. I feel great about everything I got. I got a couple of short sleeve button down shirts, polo shirt, some shorts. Everything feels great. It's super high quality. And I can't believe how much stuff I got at a reasonable price. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Whatever you need for the spring and summer, Quince has your back. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash sporkful for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sporkful to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash sporkful. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. Hey, let's keep in touch a little more often. Let's hang out. Let's chat. I'm going to give you a couple ways to do that right now. First off, follow me on Instagram. I just got back from Italy and Israel where I posted tons of photos of delicious food from soupli, which are like fried balls of rice with sauce and cheese, to Roman Jewish challah bread. Oh my gosh, so many highlights, which you would see if you follow me on Instagram at The Sporkful. Second way to keep in touch, subscribe to our newsletter. Me and the whole Sporkful team, we share each week what we're eating, what we're reading, and any important Sporkful news. You get recipes, you get articles, you get a lot of good stuff. Plus, if you're on our mailing list, you're automatically entered to win great giveaways. We recently gave away Phil Rosenthal's new book, a set of spices from Burlap and Barrel, and much more. So get on that list right now. Go to sporkful.com slash newsletter. You can sign up right now while you're listening. Sporkful.com slash newsletter. Thanks. Now back to Scott Wiener. Before we went out for a slice together, I had to check out his Guinness World Record size collection, pizza boxes. Okay, so, well, now we're in my office, which has two stacks of pizza boxes that have been photographed but not logged into my spreadsheet. So I catalog all the boxes. I would save the discussion of the spreadsheet for the second date. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if that if that comes up and she's into it, then hey, right, I'll, I'll buy a ring. <laughs> now, with pizza box design, there are two competing concerns. You want to keep the pizza warm, which should mean sealing it in the box to hold in heat, right? But when you put hot food in a container and seal it, what happens? The steam turns to condensation, and that moisture destroys the crispy crust. That's why if you look closely, you'll notice that even most cheap boxes have little vents on the side to let some of the steam escape. There's a handful of pizzerias that put corrugated paper under the pies to lift them up just a little bit. This lets steam escape from the bottom and prevents underside condensation. I can show you some high-tech pizza Yeah, boxes. show me show me some, something They're, high-tech. Because I get a lot of uh, prototypes. Okay, okay. <laughs> People send me all this crazy stuff. Somebody just told me Scott's got some beautiful boxes from around the world with full-color illustrations. There's one from Italy with a man on a moped delivering a pizza to a beautiful woman in the moonlight. A Domino's box from Japan has a psychedelic mural with a blue-haired woman, piano keys, birthday candles, and a swirling pizza that looks kind of like one of Salvador Dali's clocks. It was amazing. But really, I was most interested in seeing the latest in pizza box technology. Oh, this is a great one. Wow. So this is the pizza pod. 
This is from a company called Zoom in Mountain View, California. So, so just so I can describe, so th th this is like, these containers are very firm plastic. Is that what it is? Or is that like, um, it's like a co compostable it's situation. It's compressed sugarcane fiber. Huh. So not only is it compostable, but it's also moisture absorbent. So no ventilation because the box itself absorbs the moisture. Huh. And so the the surface, the bottom where the pizza is placed, it has all these ridges uh, to allow for air to flow underneath the pizza, so that it, so that you can maintain some of that bottom crisp, so you don't get condensation. When's the last time you had pizza at Chuck E. Cheese? Oh, it's been a real long time. Oh, well, first of all, side note: Did you know? Do you know what the E in Chuck E. Cheese stands for? No. Entertainment. Oh, that is Chuck E. Cheese's middle name. Quite literally. I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> Fun no, fact for that, you. That is, I feel like you learn something new every day. <laughs> but they serve their pizzas on these like black, I'm not sure what they're made out of, plasticky, rubbery type of a tray that has all of these round, almost like knobs, bumps. I know it. I know the tray. Okay. <laughs> okay. I know the tray. It's black. The outside is kind of like... Like angled a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the same reason. And, right, and that, and and I will tell you that that those pizzas maintain crisp for quite a while after coming to the table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen those. Not a lot of people use them. Nobody in New York uses them. Um, what about the octagonal box? I, I associate that with like Domino's or or you know the. So let me see what I got just right here well, in this what, closet. What, what's but, the what's the purpose? What's the purpose of the octagonal oh, box? So that's the D cut box. So it's it's technically I think it's a hexagon. But it's those two angles in the front are good for stability. You can stack a lot of pizzas because they have those two corners bent in. And it's also using less paper. So for two reasons. Actually, wait, third reason. This is the best reason of them all. A standard paperboard pizza box takes about 25 seconds to assemble. One of the corrugated boxes is closer to 10. But one of those D-cut domino style boxes could take as little as three seconds to assemble. I got a job at a Domino's in 2012, just kind of for fun. And uh, I was a delivery guy. And part of my job every day was you show up and you do the boxes. And I really started to love that box because I was like, whoa, it's one motion. You don't have to fiddle with little clips and nips and things. So you went and got a job at Domino's just like for research for your pizza business. Exactly. What did you learn? I learned a lot about how they're set up to do delivery and how delivery is, of course it's their focus, but the differences between a restaurant and a delivery unit and being a delivery driver for them, I really saw that, that, that the pressure was put on those delivery people. It was not so much, they didn't care about the pizza makers. After that, Scott and I left his apartment and walked to his local pizzeria. So Luduke has been around since the eighties, always in this neighborhood. Still family run. It's just your typical neighborhood slice joint. You know, with the with the booths, like the bent wood contour booths. Right. Let's go in. What's happening? How you doing? Loduca would probably remind you of your local pizzeria, even if you're not in the New York area. They got the shiny stainless steel ovens, bunch of pies on display, TV on in the corner. The regular grandma, but then you got the like low moisture grandma. What do you call this one? The grandson. Oh, the grandson? <laughs> I got to get the family. You know, I got grandma, I got grandma. A grandma pie has a crust that's like a hybrid between a regular pizza and a Sicilian. Like a Sicilian, it's rectangular, and it's cooked in a pan with olive oil, so it gets extra crispy. But the crust is still pretty thin, like a regular pie. On top, it's usually fresh mozzarella, uncooked tomatoes, garlic. 
At Leduca, they also had this grandson, which was the grandma crust, but with the standard shredded cheese and sauce on top. We're gonna do two of the grandsons with quotes around it, two of the grandmas, and let's get two regular slices. What do you think about that? Dan, I'm ordering for you. Hope Perfect. You no, thank you. I appreciate it. Yes. Or, or do you want to get funky and try a couple other stuff? We're going to no, stay no. here. I, I, I want to follow your lead. Maybe Let's do that. Sicilian? Wait, what's an evil Sicilian? Some evil Sicilian. sauce, fresh yes! mozzarella, sausage, peppers, onions, topped off for that extra virgin olive oil. Okay. Okay. It's going to be, <laughs> we're going to go back to basics. Back to basics. Do, Let's do it. We're going to split them all. We're going right. to one. So one grandson. One. One grandma. One regular. One, one regular, evil. One evil. Of course. A little tasting of everything. I got you. You should have seen Scott's face when the guys at Leduca showed him that evil Sicilian. Just the sheer joy and excitement of a new discovery. You know, when I started this podcast, I was worried that if food became my job, I wouldn't love it as much. It would be work. As it turns out, the opposite has happened. The more I've learned, the more into it I've gotten. Scott says he's had the exact same experience over the years with pizza. And you could hear it the moment he saw that evil Sicilian for the first time. Let's replay that moment and listen when he cries out. Yes! After the slices were warmed up, we sat down to eat. All right, our pizza just arrived. Scott, what are the first things you're noticing? So right away I'm observing the uh, color on the crust of all these is beautiful. It's not pale like you see in some pizzerias. It's a, it's a dark color without it being burnt or even charred. Um, and there's also micro blistering happening on the edge of the crust, which means that this dough was made at least one day ago and it was uh, allowed to sit in the refrigerator overnight. That's a good thing. That's a, yeah, I just think it's to showing age of dough. If, uh, if the dough was made today, it's a sign that it's probably going to sit in you real heavy because it, the yeast hasn't had time to break down a lot of the complex starches and carbohydrates. So the longer the fermentation, uh, the more broken down the starches and carbohydrates will be. And the micro blisters basically look like little tiny bubbles on the surface of the crust. Exactly. They're just little raised bits. I do, I do notice a lot of oil on the surface of these, some of these slices. How do you feel about blotting? I am anti-blotting for Why? myself. Why? I feel like the napkins, I'm going to whisper, the napkins that you get in pizzerias are usually not of the highest quality. So the fibers tend to stick to the pizza. So although you mean well, by blotting to sort of dampen out some of that extra oil, you're just leaving behind deposits of grainy. And but I, I think you can solve that with a quick blot. You'll be very quick and, and tactical. I guess you can if you're good. Okay. But you know, I see people all the time who they lay the napkin on and then they go to give it CPR and they're like, they're pressing it onto it. Right, and then, and then they peel it off and it gets stuck. Right, right. I, I am a, I'll drip, you know, like I don't, I don't, I do not, when people say like, oh, that's the flavor, I'm like, nah, listen, it's, it, uh, sure, it tastes fine, but you don't need it. The flavor of the pizza is in the crust and in the sauce and in the cheese itself. Right. But I'll drip a little bit of it off. All right, let's eat. Yes, absolutely. We're going I'm regular going slice first. Yeah. Oh, so there is some beautiful light char on the underside. And then it, sometimes I'll look at the cross section and I'll look at the crumb, which is the, the, the center of the bread part of the slice. But you're talking about the cross section of the edge crust. Where, where it's like the thickest bread part. You're exactly. looking to see how much air is in there. Yeah, exactly. And what can you tell by that? Well, if it's really dense, then it was stretched with a lot of aggression. And if it's lighter and more open, then the air was allowed to hang out on the very, very edge. So to me, that just shows a, a higher level of skill. So more space, more air in there is a better sign. Yes, I like that. Okay. 
All the slices were excellent. I actually like the grandma best. I like a simple pizza, and I love fresh mozzarella whenever I can get my hands on it. To me, one of the most basic tests of good pizza is that it should make some kind of sound when you bite into it. There should be at least a little crisping sound. And this pizza had that. See? If you hear nothing when you bite into your pizza, then either it's not very good pizza or the condensation got to it. Before Scott and I wrapped up, there was one more thing I had to ask. How do you feel about folding? I am a semi-folder. I think you are too. Let's see. Have you ever tried the inside-out pizza fold? You knew this was coming, Scott. I knew it was coming. <laughs> I don't know what you're thinking with the inside-out fold. Cheese and sauce directly on your tongue. I don't want that. Why not? Because your tongue is sensitive to the salt of the crust, and I want the sweetness of the sauce to hit the roof of my mouth. And I feel like by inverting that, I'm delaying that crust. It's treating the crust like it's an afterthought. And for me, the crust is the forethought. Have you ever tried it? I have tried it. After I heard your... (laughs) (laughs) I I tried it. I appreciate your open-mindedness. To me, I like the semi-fold. The semi-fold is good because when I stick my index finger in the center of a crust, and I use my two adjacent fingers to bend the crust slightly, creating sort of a flying V formation on the crust. Right. That's my ultimate way because this way the top is staying exposed. I don't like a full fold because that buries the ingredients. So I like it when the top is open and it's able to release its steam. It'll cool off. It'll tighten up. And then the crust hits my tongue. The sauce and the cheese hit the roof of my mouth and the sides. And to me, that's maybe it's just because I'm more traditional. Maybe I fear change. Okay. But I, I, I did not find success with your method. <laughs> But I loved hearing about it. <laughs> I gotta say, Scott, sitting here eating this pizza just feels so good. And I can definitely imagine that I could eat a lot of pizza and never get tired of it. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm very far from hitting my limit in life. Try it for 10 years. We'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> no more folding it inside out. Jeez. <laughs> I couldn't show my face here anymore if that happened. <laughs> That's Scott Wiener of Scott's Pizza Tours. We taped this interview a few years back, and since then, Scott's Pizza Box collection has grown to about 1,700, but he still manages to keep them all in his apartment. And I'm happy to report that Scott met someone right around when I first interviewed him. He says it's serious. He told us, quote, about 85% of what we talk about is related to food. She's not as focused and obsessed as I am, but I think it would be unhealthy if she were. And listen, whether you live in New York or you're just coming to visit, Scott's tours are a ton of fun. His enthusiasm is contagious. It's a great way to see and experience New York. And if you're not in New York, they also do online classes. Get more info at scottspizzatours.com. Finally, Scott has a nonprofit called Slice Out Hunger. They raise money for hunger relief organizations across the U.S. through pizza-related campaigns and events. They raised over $800,000 throughout the pandemic to send pizza to shelters, soup kitchens, and frontline healthcare workers. More info at sliceouthunger.org. Next week on the show, I talk with author and podcast host Malcolm Gladwell. You might know him for writing about the 10,000-hour rule. But more importantly, did you know that he grew up in the town that hosts the world's largest single-day maple syrup festival? We'll talk about that, plus his mother's Jamaican cooking, and why he only drinks five liquids. 
While you're waiting for that one, check out last week's episode about the French law that prohibits workers from eating lunch at their desks and an American expat crusading against it. That's up now. This show was originally produced by me along with Ann Sandy and Aviva de Kornfeld. Peter Clowney edited it. This update was produced by senior producer Emma Morgenstern and mixed by Jared O'Connell. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Eric Eddings. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And this is Sasha and Zoe Moore from Booton, New Jersey, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more badass.